0: Slate Podcast is brought to you by Bing.com, the search engine that helps you make everyday decisions with the help of your friends. Now, what your friends like on Facebook is in your search results on Bing.
1: Hello and welcome to Slate's Audio Book Club for Friday, July 15th. My name is Hannah Rosen, and I'm double X editor at Slate. I am here in the Washington, D.C. studio with Noah, who is my daughter and an esteemed Harry Potter expert. Hello, Noah. Hi and we are joined in, in the Massachusetts Sleepaway Camp office apparently the infirmary which is the uh, subsidiary of Slate in Massachusetts by Emily Bazelon hi emily hey and her lovely son simon 8 year old simon hi simon The reason we have brought these experts here is, of course, because we are talking about Harry Potter 7. In fact, we are posting this book club earlier than usual because we are so excited about the Harry Potter movie, which for sure you have either seen a preview for, unless you are living in a deep, dark cave or been taken to Azkaban, Uh, you must have seen the preview or some of the posters for Harry Potter 7. Now, we are going to assume that most of the listeners on this podcast are all fans, and so we're not going to do an extensive summary of the plot, which anyway would take us about three. Three and a half hours <laughs> for sure take up the whole podcast. So, we're going to look at some of the big questions and also how they look on film. And the reason we in- invited Simon and Noah with us, which is a first ever on the Slate Audio Book Club, is because they frankly know more than we do about these books. Uh, hey, speak for yourself maybe Emily is a Harry Potter obsessive. But anyway, I really needed Noah to explain to me many, many things about Dumbledore's final speech to Harry Potter in the King's Cross chapter. But we'll get to that. That's the very end of the book. So all you need to know is that this book is about the final showdown, obviously, between Harry and the Dark Lord. That's the big main plot. It is much, much darker, darker than the other books. You know, it has sort of Azkaban as the Gulag and these Nuremberg laws, which are the blood laws. And it's it's very different in feel than the other books. So I'm going to throw my first question to Noah, which is... Is this is the first book in which the kids are really out there alone. Uh, They're not at Hogwarts. They don't have teachers around. There's no Dumbledore to guide them. Did you think that worked well? Were you frightened by that? What did you think about that as a setting for 700 pages of aloneness?
2: I think that was a good idea because it's sort of – it's a change from the other books, but it's – It's a change that really makes you think about the characters. Mm -hmm. I think the only problem was it was a little bit sudden. They changed from school children to independent adults in 20 pages.
1: Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. That's interesting. What do you think, Simon? Well, I
0: think Dumbledore was going to die. He kind of had to die in a way. How come? Well, I think Harry, Hermione, and Ron, they kind of had to do it alone. I don't think it would have worked with Dumbledore, because if Dumbledore had stayed there, they would have kept Hogwarts running. But even if Severus hadn't killed Dumbledore, he was going to die because he had gotten cursed by Voldemort's ring, which had the Resurrection Stone in it.
1: Most kids' books are told as orphans or children wandering alone. It's fairly common. And I guess in a sense, Harry was never an orphan, right, Emily? I mean, he he was without parents, but he always had a mentor to guide him and some kind of father figure. So in a sense, this is the first time in which he's truly orphaned. Is that how you thought about it, Emily?
3: also think there's something about the adolescent tone of the book. Starting in book five, the Harry Potter series gets much darker and Harry is quite surly at times. And I was struck rereading this book or actually listening to it again, because I really love the tapes or whatever the CDs, I should say, that um, Jim Dale narrates. And Harry spends a lot of the book quite resentful of Dumbledore. And there's this um, conflict going on with someone who's gone that I think is actually gives a really interesting edge to the book that hasn't been in the series before.
1: I have two big questions about Harry, which maybe the kids can help me with. One of the questions which my family gets annoyed with me about is, you know, why is Harry so good? I mean, this is something I don't like about the series. It's sort of like he's Pip and Great Expectations, like he essentially doesn't change. You know, there's no real reason why Harry should have such a perfect moral compass. He doesn't have religion in his life. He doesn't have parents. He wasn't born with people teaching him how to do the right thing. You know, in all normal circumstances, Harry should be a truant. I mean, he should be somebody who's like, you know, out in the street torturing cats. And yet Harry is this wonderful person who essentially always, always does the right thing, even when it costs him a lot, as we see in this book. So do you guys have any defense of that? Why is Harry so good? Why do you think Harry has to be so good? Noah, do you have any ideas about that? It's more surprising.
2: You keep saying that Harry, like, doesn't have all these things that might make him good. But if he had all those things and was good, then then it really wouldn't be a good book because Harry wouldn't really be a person. He would just be guided the
0: whole time and it wouldn't be interesting. Well, I think that there are instances when he, Ron, and Hermione um, have these long-time conflicts with each other. Like when in the fourth book, Ron gets extremely mad at Harry because he is picked by the Goblet of Fire, which... Bartimus
3: Crouch, Jr., Trick the goblet. And in that book, Ron leaves for a while, right? He gets really yes. upset and he leaves. And is that a part of the book that you guys enjoy? Or is it a part of the book that is kind of brooding and sad?
0: I
1: like Ron for that reason. Like, to me, Ron is a person who has fury and irrational behavior and somebody who just storms out and is obviously open to temptation. I mean, the reason Ron is the person who saw the visions of Harry and Hermione together because Ron is someone who's truly temptable in a way that Harry never seems to be. But I am curious. There's been a lot of critics who found that boring, them just sort of wandering in the desert, Ron being in a bad mood, you know, blah, blah. Like in the well, first movie, they had Harry and Hermione kind of have this dancing. They kind of jazzed it up a little bit. I
0: think that when Ron left, I kind of don't like that. He's Why? Kind of, well, I think part of the reason he
3: left was he was wearing the locket. Uh-huh. And it was a horcrux, and it was yeah. kind of like poisoning him a little yeah. bit, right? So you but sort of. Also, once he took it off and left, he couldn't come back for a while because
0: when you get caught up in a gang of snatchers, it really isn't easy.
3: Then he had used a Deluminator. And what was the lesson of the Deluminator is that Dumbledore left him exactly what he needed to come back, I right? I know.
0: Either Dumbledore has super divination skills, <laughs> or. He's just a plain mad, yes, genius, yes. <laughs> no,
1: what do you think about that same wandering question? Like, what's your view about the fact that Ron left and they were wandering? Like, did you like that part of the book?
2: I think about the wandering that it went on for a long time, but I think the more interesting parts were when Ron was there. And I think that the fact that they sped it up a little bit when Ron left was very, very, very helpful. Because when Ron left, it just got a little bit tedious what they were doing. Like what? It was on and on. Like they even return to some of the same places. They look everywhere. They don't find anything and they're very sad. But when Ron's there, there's more
3: conflict and
2: emotions
3: the drawn-out quality of it makes it actually feel more real because tedium is actually a part of what you go through on a long quest like this. So perhaps there's some purpose to it, although I also think that the editor stopped editing J.K. Rowling as she became wildly popular. Yeah, I
1: had two feelings about it. One is I thought that the long spaces allowed it to become truly bleak. In other words, you were really allowed to feel the hopelessness, you know, because there is a way in which you're pretty certain they are going to find the horcruxes. It's just the Harry Potter books are ultimately pretty hopeful, no matter how dark they get. So, so she really drew you into their sense of despair and hopelessness. It was like we've got nothing, we've got no clues, we don't know where to go, we're stuck here. Ron has left us. I mean, you really got to feel that pretty powerfully. On the other hand, I did feel like okay, here's my magical checklist. You know, like I don't even remember all the things that they did. I just knew they had this sort of giant magical checklist that they had to go through, and it was like check one, check two, check three. Godric's Hollow, Gravestone, Death. Deathly Hallows, Resur- you know, it just kind of all got mixed in together with me on there in my head, uh, jumbled together on that very long journal. Now, here's the question that maybe one of you two or one of you three can answer. What was the Beatle the Bard about? I never could figure that out for myself.
0: Well, Beetle the Bard was a storyteller. In fact, there's actually a book of his stories that somebody published. And they learned mostly about the Deathly Hallows with Xenophilus. Xenophilius?
1: Xenophilius. I've been calling everybody Xenophilius this week when I pick <laughs> I'm up the phone.
0: i <laughs> but I don't really care. Anyway, so when they were at his house, when he was going to give them to the Dark Lord, he read them the story of the three brothers. Mm-hmm. And that raises up another question for me, which is, how did Dumbledore defeat Grindelwald? Grindelwald was the rightful owner of the Elder Wand and the entire point of the Elder Wand, the entire reason it was made, it's because it's undefeatable. Grindelwald was the true master. And if you are the true master, you have the Elder Wand, you can't be defeated. Now, Dumbledore was a more powerful wizard than Grindelwald.
1: That's a great question, Simon. Let me see if Noah has an answer to it.
2: I feel like if you use Harry's logic that he uses in the end with Voldemort, you can actually figure out how Dumbledore is the true master of the Elder Wand.
1: What do you mean by that? Can you explain that a little bit? What um, logic are you referring to? Because Harry
2: disarmed Draco Malfoy. I think the more strong idea I have is that really the Deathly Hallows were a fraud. They were horrible and didn't exist and well they existed but they weren't what they were told to be and the elder wand wasn't the best thing you could have harry showed it by throwing it away and it causes conflict and it's not real dumbledore was a better wizard grindelwald was a horrible mean guy and dumbledore got the elder wand because the elder wand wasn't what it's
3: supposed to be. And one thing I actually really like about your idea, you Noah, know, is that there are lots of objects in Harry Potter. It happens in the first book with the, what is he looking into? That mirror, the sorcerer's stone, right? Where there is a magical object that is supposed to be good, but actually can kind of backfire on you.
1: That's the part of Dumbledore's speech, even though I was complaining about it initially in King's Cross, that's very helpful because, you know, it's not ultimately about power. Otherwise, Voldemort would have won. That when they keep saying the wand chooses the owner, the wand chooses the owner, at some level you have to be worthy of being chosen. And so if you are inherently unworthy like Rindelwald was, it's not going to work out for you. Like it's going to be an unstable ownership and it's going to fall apart the same way it was an unstable ownership when Dumbledore had it and it fell apart, that it has to land in the right hands, which is my only... This is the only explanation that makes me feel better about the fact that Harry is so purely good. Because any any kind of hint of evil or temptation towards power makes you unable to possess and solve the problem. This is what happened to even Dumbledore, who we've thought of as good. I think
0: that is a good explanation. Also, I think the, the Hollows really were what they were supposed to be. I like the idea that the you had to be worthy of the Elder Wand, mm-hmm. but Prevail, she wasn't totally worthy, but then Prevail created it, so...
1: Right, they were the right. original yeah. storytellers.
0: And the Resurrection Stone, it worked. It half worked, in fact. Actually, the hollow two of the hollows didn't really actually work. The Resurrection Stone, it brought people back, but... Not all the way. Yeah. They were behind a veil. Right. He couldn't really speak to them. They, like, flickered. Well,
1: <laughs> I'm going to ask you a question about the Deathly Hallows in one second, but, Noah, you had something that you wanted to interrupt with for a minute.
2: Um, I want to say that about the Harry being eternally good, you need a little bit of background information on Harry for the seventh book. It's a pretty independent book, but in the last books, Harry is not totally good. In the fifth book, he throws a temper tantrum. And is really, really horrible to Dumbledore and completely irrational. And also he knows that Voldemort has set a trap for him. He falls for it. He's been tempted by things. He's been horrible in the books. Mm -hmm. It's just the seventh book he happens to be
3: better because he knows that the whole world is on him. Also, isn't Harry's ultimate quandary that he has to put the people he loves at risk for himself? That's how the seventh book opens when they're doing this amazing transport of Harry that everybody else has to be caught up in. And it happens again toward the end of the book. And that's a real dilemma for him.
1: Right. He has to effectively act like his mother. I mean, that's a little rough one for me because it's a little bit like the lesson of the giving tree. You know, this idea Mm -hmm. that the ultimate honor is a self-sacrifice of that extreme kind. I I don't know if any of you guys know the book, The Giving Tree, but... You know, it's a pretty horrifying book, actually. It's a Shel Silverstein book. And ultimately, you know, this is a book about how the tree sheds and gives and gives everything of itself, its entire life, which is what Harry Potter's mother did, and which is ultimately what Harry is asked to do in the end. And that is the thing that brings you victory. That's the only form of goodness. I it's agree. basically the story of Jesus Christ. And it's and rough. And, yeah, an Aslan and Narnia. I mean, that that's a rough message, I feel, for a kid. It's a high bar
0: problem, I think, that happened with J.K. Rowling, I think her books were amazing, but I think eventually in the Battle of Hogwarts, she kind of killed too many people.
1: (laughs) That's a good point. She
0: killed Colin Creevy. She killed Fred. That is what I'm really mad about. She killed Lupin. She killed Tonks. She killed Dobby, another thing I'm mad about. She killed Mad-Eye? What did Hedwig do?
1: What did Hedwig do? That should be the title of this podcast. What did Hedwig do? Noah, who were you mad about that she killed?
2: I was mad that she killed both Lupin and Tonks because Lupin had just started to be a really great character in the story, in the chapter The Bribe, where he comes to try to convince harry ron hermione that he can go with them he becomes such an interesting character and then before we can hear anything more about him he's killed off along with his wife and teddy lupin does not have to be an orphan it does nothing for the story
3: it reproduces the story of harry right
1: yeah so we're going to take a break for a moment to thank our sponsor our sponsor for this week's book club is bing the new search engine i've been using bing a lot so i'm really happy to have bing as our sponsor it's actually perfect for this book club Bing has an entertainment tab on its search engine where you can look up all sorts of things like movies. I looked up the movie tab and it actually takes you directly to the movie theaters in Washington DC and it has links to reviews and it shows you on the right sort of which newspapers have written about the movie. It's exactly designed for an event such as the Harry Potter 7 movie. So you can look up a lot of great stuff on Bing. The most exciting thing about Bing which makes it different from other search engines is its social search feature. So you can see what your Facebook friends like and don't like, it shows up right on your homepage. And so you can see which movies they're seeing after you see the Harry Potter movie, if you should choose to see another movie. And it shows up right with the rest of your search results. So you get it all there on one page, you get movie times, you get reviews, you get your friends' opinions, and it's all on the homepage. So it's pretty great and really perfect for summer entertainment. So thank you to Bing for sponsoring us. And now let's go back to our podcast. So there are two modes of rule following in this book. First, there's Creature. Do you guys remember Creature pretty well, how he essentially followed the rules no matter what? Like, there's a great scene where Harry Potter is yelling at Creature and saying, like, Voldemort tried to kill you and you still gave this information to Voldemort. You were still loyal to him. And Hermione keeps explaining to him, look, Harry, that's how the elves work. They're ultimately loyal. They follow the rules and they're loyal. They do it no matter what, right? With the exception being Dobby. And then there's Harry and his... As friends, what is the name of the group they form that's against the dark arts in the school?
0: DA Dumbledore's Army.
1: Dumbledore's Army, thank you. It was
0: DA. originally supposed to be Defense Against the Dark Arts, but Ginny said, I like DA but I think it should be Dumbledore's Army. So we'll call it
1: Dumbledore's Army. So essentially, they break all the rules. Now, what do you guys think of that? I mean, you have essentially, you know, are taught by your moms who are sitting here that you should follow rules and your teachers that you should follow rules. And being good in your life probably means following the rules. If you don't follow the rules in school, you get in big trouble. So what do you think about the fact that the only way to achieve victory in this book is to break all the rules? Noah, you look like you have something to say.
2: I want to go back to the question about the house elves Mm -hmm. i feel like because they're so loyal they're some of the best creatures in the book because they want to do what's best but they don't exactly know what's best what they think is best is what their master tells them to do but with creature he's nasty. He's mean. Mm-hmm. But he's also so, so good. If you read the chapter Creature's Tale, you hear he did absolutely everything for his master, even though he was a Death Eater and he knew he was horrible. But why is that good? That's good because they're so loyal and they try to do the best. But
0: Black was good. He switched the locket. Not that that wasn't entirely a think- good thing because then Dumbledore drank the poison, but... He was trying, right? It yes, was well-intended. Yes, definitely, definitely. But I also think house elves are some of the most magical creatures there are. What do you mean? Well, I'll go back to the second book when Harry takes his dirty sock, picks up Tom Riddle's bleeding, dead diary, mm-hmm. um, stuffs it inside his sock, gives it to Mr. Malfoy, Mr. Malfoy throws the sock, Dobby catches it, mm-hmm. and Malfoy goes, Dobby, come, we're going. And Dobby basically just stares at the sock, going, Master gave, gave a sock. <laughs> and Malfoy goes, What? Dobby, come on. And Dobby goes, Master gave a sock to Dobby. Dobby is free. And then Malfoy. Tries to attack Harry, but this is where House Elf magic comes in. Dobby, all he does is goes basically raises right his middle finger. Malfoy is blown back to the platform and walks away mm-hmm. because you cannot defeat House Elf, House Elf magic. Uh-huh. They have finger magic, like the only creature that has that kind of magic.
1: Well, that brings me actually to another point, you know, because Dobby comes in at a crucial moment in this book. I wonder if the children found this annoying because I found this annoying. Maybe you guys loved it. One thing I don't like about what J.K. Rowling does in this book is that she just basically like magically Dobby appears and kind of gets them out of a situation that seems impossible. You know, you just don't know how it's going to work out. And then like, oops, from the sky, there appears Dobby with some special form
3: of magic. Wait, and- but he was Wasn't he? Wasn't he called by the mirror? I guess he was called by Aberforth. Yeah, Aberforth had a short of mirror,
0: and he was peeking at Harry, and Harry kept seeing him when he was in trouble. And
3: Aberforth was looking. Is and still two Deus smack enough
1: for you? I sort of feel like there are some plots that work organically, like Snape, you know, the idea about Snape and how it's been working throughout the book and sort of when that reveal comes and you figure out what's actually going on between Snape and Dumbledore, you're like, oh my gosh, that makes so much sense. Everything comes together for me. But I then know. in these other moments where it's like, zoop, here's an Aberforth and zoop, here's another one, you know, it's like they just kind of appear from the sky and save everybody. And it- well, Snape is
0: a switch- you cannot figure out if he is Death Eater or good guy. It's basically impossible. First book, you think he's good. Second book, he's just regular old mean snake. Third book, you think he's kind of bad. Fourth book, you think, well, he's
1: evil. To me, that makes him, like, one of the best characters know, in the whole I know. series.
0: He's my favorite character.
1: Why? And so let's talk about The Prince's Tale, which is all of our favorite when chapters.
0: When you his I just read it, is him spying on Petunia and Lily. And he sees Lily holding a blossom and making it open and close
2: in her hand. It's like a key to the rest of the book. You you get a feeling of... Like, how it's all gone so far, and you feel like, oh, I was wrong the whole time, and you see all these connections that you've never seen, and it's just so interesting. It's like a story within the story. It's like a whole different book.
0: And you see why Snape's Patronus is a doe, because Lily's Patronus is a doe, and you also see why he hates Harry, because he loved Lily, and he hated James. And James was actually mean to him, and and Harry... I think James was, as Lily said in one of their years at Hogwarts before their seventh, James Potter is an arrogant (laughs) to-rag. And as Snape walked away, he had a spring in his step. (laughs)
1: <laughs> Simon, you have the most amazing memory. Even the thing you said about the flower I thought was amazing because I read that chapter sort of sitting in front of a fountain. I just read it. I mean, but still, it's just, it's amazing. But Emily, what do you think are we supposed to understand about the relationship between Snape and Lily? Was he pining for her? Like, what are we supposed to understand about
3: that relationship? I think we're relationship? supposed to think he has this amazing unrequited love for her. And it's actually one of the more difficult psychological moves in the book because usually we don't honor people for remaining in love with women who marry someone else. Right. Who you're, you're told to move on, and yet Snape's refusal to move on emotionally is his great contribution to the triumph of so good was, over evil in the series. Was, and
0: I also think in Harry Potter, it's weird, because in most books, the evil person never gains control. But in the seventh book, Voldemort is completely in control. four chapters, they destroy his entire empire. Right, right. He, he has control over, what, half the world? And he has control, of basically, of the entire wizarding world. And yet, in four chapters, his empire is killed. He dies. Right. It's like the ultimate comeback.
1: But didn't you guys know he was going to die? Was there any moment in the book where you seriously, either Noah or Simon, thought to yourselves, Harry's going to lose this war?
2: No. No. There is not, because I know that Herod's got to win because, like, of the way the books are going, but it's still interesting to see how it happens, and it, it doesn't make the book not the best book I've ever written in my life.
0: I agree, because I think it could have taken a bit longer to destroy his empire, because it's,
3: it's like, like... What, like 2,000 pages? No. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Four chapters at the end go too quickly, you think?
0: That Harry is actually the master of the Elder Wand, and how he figures that out, like, the true master of the Elder Wand was Draco, because Draco disarmed Dumbledore, so he was the true master. And when Harry stole his wand, that meant Harry was the master of the Elder Wand.
1: What did you guys think of Dumbledore? Was I would say we could all agree reduced in this novel. I mean, at first you you know you have the sense that there's just this skeezy journalist Rita Skeeter who's making up things about him, and then it turns out, which would be us, me and you, Emily. No, um, it'd be News of the World. <laughs> news exactly. of the World, maybe. But you know the journalists don't come off too well in this novel. And then it turns out that most of what Rita Skeeter has written is actually true. And you know you have a scene in which Dumbledore is almost pleading for Harry's forgiveness. No, I'll let you go first. What did you think of of Dumbledore. Did you want him to remain the kind of perfect fatherly mentor figure? Or were you okay with the fact that he was diminished a little bit in this book?
2: No, and I felt that he could have been diminished even a little bit more. I think they could have kept him alive until maybe like, well, not kept him alive, but this could have happened in the sixth book. Harry could have seen Dumbledore even do something horrible. I think... Dumbledore was just too perfect for the first books. He was too modest. He was too nice, even even when he did something wrong. He did this horrible thing, but he was just so nice and wonderful about it. He could have been horrible about it. He was too good. If so was, we could
1: have gotten earlier hints of the fact that Dumbledore was like a conflicted character. No, I think character. we just
2: could have gotten worse hints.
1: Uh-huh. What do you More think, Simon? More of the backstory.
0: Personally, I agree. He was too perfect. Right. He was just like goody-goody. Right. He has goody goody two shoes.
3: Right. So, do you agree with Noah that we should have known earlier? We should have gotten an inkling of Dumbledore's dark past? No. I think it's actually good that he only figures it
0: out in the second to last chapter. Because it seems to me that Dumbledore at King's Cross is interesting. It just makes you feel. Right. That finally. The secret has been revealed. The secret has been unveiled. And then suddenly,
3: Harry figures it all out. And as with Snape, I think that Rowling is able to make us empathize with people at their worst, as well as when they're being valiant and heroic, right? Exactly.
1: Right, like that wonderful line Harry has at the end when his children, in the epilogue, which we'll get to in a moment, when he talks about, you know, his children are terrified of being chosen for Slytherin, and he says, one of the bravest men I knew was from Slytherin. It took Two great
3: headmasters to defeat Voldemort.
1: Exactly. And even named his children after. And even named his children Severus, middle-named Severus. So that was really true. Exactly. Let's go towards the end. Let's sort of put our minds to the moment when Harry really thinks he's going to die. I mean, he essentially feels himself walking to his death so much so that he is distancing himself from the world of the living. There's a great line where he says that suddenly Ron and Hermione, who have been, you know, sort of flesh of my flesh, so close to him for all those years, suddenly start receding into non reality and he already feels closer to the world of the dead than he does to the world of the living. For kids like you guys who love Harry Potter, that's a Pretty heavy, serious thing to think about, kind of walking towards your own death. And so I wonder how you guys experienced that.
0: Voldemort tethered Harry to life while he lived because Harry was a horcrux. Because when the Vodacadaver spell rebounded, Voldemort's soul, part of it broke. Right.
3: Split. Caught on to the nearest living thing, which was, of course, Harry. So when Harry's walking to his death and you know that he has to sacrifice himself, were you scared for him? Do you feel like this is a powerful, deep moment in the book? I was amazed because you spent so much time thinking
0: that he will defeat Voldemort. But then, all of a sudden, it seems, how can he not die? He's sacrificing himself. I kind of knew this because my brother had told me a bit about it. But <laughs> the thing
3: about yeah. being a little younger and reading the books, right? Yeah, I, I know, but it's still really serious. I think that chapter was
2: the grimmest chapter in the whole book because it's like you feel like for one minute that he's just like it's done. And even for maybe half of that chapter, I was convinced that there would be a twist in the story, and Ron and Hermione would be the heroes, and they would finish off Voldemort, and there would be some mistake. And I thought maybe Harry's just going to be great in the book because he sacrifices himself, and then the book's going to be done, and but Voldemort
3: won't triumph for some it does seem almost possible. I also think that it's quite powerful, and I think this happens in The Goblet of Fire, too, that Harry's parents essentially, I in think, his moment of greatest need, appear. And so even though he's been an orphan, they are there to help him. And oh, I, reading oh, the book as a parent, always find that scene very moving and cry to the embarrassment no, of my no, children. I yes. think that
0: his parents
3: came out because they were the last Avada cadaver
0: that he did.
1: Yeah, Emily, there's that line when he says to his mother, stay close to me. That was a line that really got me because, you know, he is an orphan. These people are not necessarily real. He just hears his mother's voice. He almost never calls out to his mother. He doesn't really know her and the kind of little memories he has are so precious. And so and here he's asking her actually to walk alongside him. Which
3: Right. And she is has the widest smile. I remember that line, too. And he's never able to. It's not like he ever gets to sit down and have coffee with his parents. They show up in these incredibly emergency situations, and they can all just kind of root for each other in this very powerful but yeah. moment fleeting way, and then they're gone. And it's one thing
1: to idealize your mother, because anybody in that situation would idealize your mother, but it's another thing to call on your mother for actual practical help.
3: Right, exactly. They, they could not have lived, because if they had lived, Voldemort would have won. The original and, myth, it relies on them being gone. And don't you think also that yeah. part of the power of the character of Harry is that we know he has this huge mom? Yes, please. so <laughs> I think that
0: if they had lived and he'd attacked Neville first, then it might have been Neville wearing that scar. Neville defeating the Basilisk, Neville making friends with Ron and
3: Hermione. And what joins Neville to Harry?
0: Well, what makes Harry close to Neville is Harry doesn't have parents, but, but Neville is kind of worse. He has parents, but they don't even recognize him. Right. That's so, very sad part. So of the they might as just as well be dead. They both are orphans, but Neville definitely had a better orphancy.
1: I love the triumph of Neville. That was one of my favorite things when Neville got his moment as a hero. Let me close by asking you guys a few questions. The first question is, what was your favorite character in the book? Noah, who was your favorite character in the book?
2: It's a different question who I think was the best character and who was my favorite character. My favorite character was easily Snape because I think he was he was just so interesting and so amazing. And he was definitely at his best in the seventh book. But I think the best character in the book was Totally uh-huh. Bellatrix Lestrange. She was given such a great character. In parts, I think she's almost worse than Voldemort. She's just so merciless and horrible and evil, and she comes from an evil family. And At least Voldemort maybe had a little hardship in his life, but... Bellatrix Lestrange was just pure evil. She's an example of pure evil.
1: And particularly in A Woman, it's surprising. And she's also played by the amazing actress Helena Bonham Carter. And from the early reviews I've read of the movie, she has a larger part in this movie than she did in the first half. And so that's really great. Now, Simon, it's your turn.
0: I really do like Bellatrix as a character. But I think also for all these other characters, I liked Hedwig. Uh-huh. Snape is definitely my favorite character. And then there's all these characters that died that should not have died. Um, Snape definitely should not have died. Fred should not have died. Hedwig should not. Have- if you had to pick one character to save, who would you pick? Too I can't hard. choose between Bobby, Fred, Hedwig, Lupin, Tonks, or Mad Eye.
1: Here's another question, a little bit like that one. Who would you be the most afraid to meet in a dark alley? Dolores Umbridge, Bellatrix, or Nagini? Nagini. Nagini.
2: My answer to that question might be different from other people's. Mine would be the snake because the thing I'm most scared of in the world is snakes. And I think that that snake in particular just is like... She's as bad as her
1: master. Uh-huh.
2: But Bellatrix might also be scary because she's just so absolutely crazy and horrible.
1: Right. Noah, I might be remembering this wrong, but I do think Noah hid under her chair for the first few minutes of the Harry Potter 7 movie when there was just an extended snake scene. Um, what about you, Simon, of those three? Well,
0: am I a wizard or not?
1: Nope. You're not a wizard. Okay. You're Simon. You're a muggle. Uh-oh. You're a muggle. Okay.
0: But if I was a wizard, I would be most afraid to meet Bellatrix. Because Nagini, you could actually stop Nagini if you were, um, an okay wizard <laughs> because a couple of reduction spells, but Nagini is also She isn't just as bad as Voldemort. She is Voldemort. Right. Her soul, Voldemort's
1: soul. Is in Nagini. Okay, now we're going to move to the final thing, which is about the epilogue. I want you guys to think about any questions that you have left. Do you think the epilogue, did it satisfy you, Noah? Do you feel like it said what it needed to say, that you felt like it it was the right way for this epic series to end?
2: I think my problem with the epilogue was it just made me anxious. Because? And because it's like all I can think about is Harry's going to miss the train and I'm not even thinking about <laughs> oh, no. what's actually happening in the book. Uh-huh. And it's just like I, I keep thinking about other things and it really doesn't like let me concentrate on what's actually happening in the epilogue. I think like what's their jobs, what's going to happen, they're about to close the train door, what's Albus going to do, he's not going to get there in time. Uh-huh. It's just It doesn't let me
0: really know what's happening. Story unfinished. Mm-hmm. I think he could definitely write a book about Harry's children. I do want to know what job he got. He couldn't have gotten Defense Against the Dark Arts because he would be on the train. He couldn't have gotten Headmaster. He would already be at Hogwarts. I don't know what job he got. I think the job left is an R.
1: That's interesting. I just assumed Harry was working at the post office or something, that he had chosen for himself the most ordinary life. The reason I loved the epilogue and it was satisfying for me is because we had had 700 and some pages almost entirely devoid of humor. I mean, they were small jokes, but one of the things that I love about J.K. Rowling is like many of the great British writers, she is an heir to Dickens. She's extremely funny. She creates these great sort of parodies of societal characters who we recognize, you know, headmistresses at British boarding schools, you know, uh, store owners, ridiculous parents, you know, straight out of Roald Dahl and lots of British writers who we love. And we really did not even get a little breathing space base of that in this book and then suddenly at the end you know from the time that they start making up that funny chant about Voldy going moldy yeah. <laughs> you get your old JK Rowling back you know and it's only for about 15 pages but you still get your old JK Rowling yeah. back for right. a little bit
0: this is how it goes we okay get it. we bash them we putters the one and Voldy's gone moldy so now let's have fun <laughs> Well, Simon,
1: thank you for joining us. Have fun for the rest of your time at Sleepaway Camp. Emily, thank you for driving to Massachusetts to do the podcast with us. Noah, thank you for coming from your camp to do the podcast with me. And thank you to Abdullah Rufus for engineering this podcast.